Chapter Twelve of The Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. Get out of the way, stupid! Can't you see I'm wanted in the front? Bliss, with a rope in one hand, flattened himself against the wall of canvas scenery, while Miss Maisie Linden, after an angry glance at him, tripped onto the stage to take a none too enthusiastic recall. She came off, if possible, in a worse temper than ever, and stood talking for several moments to a gentleman in dress clothes and with a silk hat on the back of his head, who was loitering in the wings. With a sinking heart, Bliss noticed that she pointed him out. When the curtain fell, the person in authority crossed the stage and beckoned to him. "'How long have you been on here?' he asked curtly. "'I'm on for a week's trial at half-pay, sir,' was the reply. "'You needn't turn up to-morrow,' the manager said shortly. "'You can get what's owing to you at my office.' Bliss turned away a little wearily. It was a fortnight since he had taken his abrupt leave of Mrs. Mott, and this was the first regular job that had come in his way. Somehow or other he had been unable to feel any disappointments whatsoever at the strange termination of his career as an assistant in the greengrocer's establishment in Crumnow Street. He had welcomed Mr. Mott's inopportune return, in fact, with something very much like relief, and as soon as he had deposited his things with Mrs. Heath, who had welcomed him back cordially, he had sallied cheerfully out in search of another situation. Day by day, however, the luck had been against him. He had earned a few shillings, but not nearly enough to pay Mrs. Heath's modest bill. Only yesterday he had seen the notice, Stage Hands Wanted, posted outside the Frivolity Theatre, and had taken his place in a line of applicants. For once his luck had seemed to be in. He was the last man engaged, and the twenty-five shillings he was offered seemed almost wealth. And now, on the first night, this tragedy! Dismissed! Even in the midst of his despair, however, the irony of the situation brought a grim smile to his lips. It was only a few months since it had given Miss Maisie Linden great pleasure to be one of his guests at a supper-party at the Savoy. He could even recall her impressive looks and whispered asides her obvious efforts to please him. He remembered, too, how much he had admired her that night. "'The sweetest little thing in London,' someone had declared enthusiastically. It was quite a different young woman who had just vented her spite upon a scene-shifter. Bliss made his way with a heavy heart to the back of the stage to be ready for the resumption of his work. On the way he passed three or four young ladies of the chorus, one of whom looked at him curiously. He recognised her at once. It was a young lady who, although her dramatic inspirations were limited, was very well known in Bohemian London. The recognition was obviously mutual. She detached herself from the others and came over to his side. "'Why, it's Ernie!' she exclaimed. It's Ernie Bliss!" 
He glanced away, frowning. "'Don't give me away,' he begged quickly. "'But what are you doing here?' she demanded. "'What does it mean?' "'I was a scene-shifter here until about three minutes ago,' he told her. "'I've just got the sack. Miss Maisie Linden complained of my getting in her way.' The girl seemed still half stupefied. "'But I don't understand,' she protested. "'They told me that you were so immensely wealthy.' "'So I was,' he replied grimly, once. "'Are you really broke, then?' she persisted. "'Look at me,' he exclaimed, touching the place where his collar should have been, and pointing to the ragged ends of his trousers. "'Then all I can say,' she declared indignantly, her eyes becoming suspiciously bright, "'is that your friends have behaved disgracefully. Look here, we shall be called in a moment.' We're in the opening chorus. I have a friend whom they say is very clever, something in the city. Mr. James Fancourt, his name is. He has chambers in Gerrard Street, number seven. Will you go and see him? I'll write and ask him to find you a job. Does he know anything about me? Bliss inquired. Not that I know of. Will you promise not to tell him my real name? I don't want to appeal for anyone's sympathy. I only want a job if I can earn the money. Indeed, I won't accept it, unless it is offered to me as a discharged scene-shifter from Frivolity Theatre. I shan't tell him a word, she promised hastily. Mind you go and see him. I'll write tonight. I will say your name is Johnson. She tripped away, and Bliss was tapped on the shoulder by the foreman. Here's your money he was told curtly. Less two fines, eight and fourpence. You can hook it straight away. We don't pay you to stand about and talk to the ladies. Bliss went out into the night, and with his overcoat buttoned up to his ears, paused at the corner of the strand, shivering. Once more, for a few minutes, he weakened. He was so near the one restaurant in London where his word was law. He could imagine the zest with which they would serve him if he were only to stop a taxi, drive to his rooms, and change. He could almost hear the little chorus of welcome, feel the pleasant warmth of the place, smell the appetizing odours. It seemed impossible to believe that a few months ago he had found it hard to select anything to tempt his appetite had glanced indifferently at the long list of vintage champagnes, had found his food tasteless, and the attentions of a host of friends boring. And above it all, as he stood there, he seemed to hunger for a really kind word, for the look of someone who was really glad to see him. Curiously enough, it was not one of that army of fair women and well-placed young men who suddenly held his thoughts, suddenly strengthened his wavering. He was looking northwards instead of westwards. Next Sunday, he determined, I will go and see her if I have to go in rags. The moment of weakness had passed. He bought his supper at a cook-shop and drank a glass of beer without the slightest fear of indigestion. Then he went back to his room and slept. The next two days he spent in tramping about, making countless applications for jobs, 
always with the same result. On the third day he made the best toilet he could, and presented himself at the rooms of Mr. James Fancourt. A manservant showed him into an apartment furnished half as a study, half as an office. He recognised Mr. James Fancourt with a start, as an habitué of the most fashionable rendezvous about town. Mr. Fancourt, however, showed no signs of sharing the recognition. He was a distinguished-looking young man, with black, shiny hair, slightly waved in front, a long, clean-shaven face, and features good, if somewhat expressionless. His attire was perfection. He scrutinised Bliss through an eyeglass with a certain kindly toleration. "'Your name's Johnson, isn't it?' he remarked. "'Ernest Johnson,' Bliss assented. For a moment James Fancourt looked at him, and during that moment Bliss felt as though a searchlight was being turned upon himself and his past. "'Sorry to hear you're down on your luck,' the former continued smoothly. "'I don't want to know the particulars, of course. But were you at a public school?' "'Eton,' Bliss replied. "'Varsity? Maudlin. Need we talk about that?' "'Certainly not,' Mr. Fancourt replied. "'I only want to have some sort of idea of the person I have to deal with. Miss Forrest tells me that you want a job.' "'I want one badly. I am willing to do almost anything,' Bliss asserted. Mr. Fancourt extracted a cigarette from the open box in front of him, and passed them on to Bliss. "'Have a smoke?' Bliss accepted the offer without hesitation. As he lit the cigarette, for a moment his eyes were half-closed. It was his own special Turkish tobacco, the tobacco he had always declared to be the finest in London. He blew out a little whiff of the smoke with keen appreciation. Lately he had been smoking shag. Mr. Fancourt smiled sympathetically. "'Sit down,' he invited. "'Now, Mr. Johnson.' I'm willing to help you if I can. You want to earn a living? I can put you in the way of earning one. The question is, are you particular how you earn it?" Bliss looked at his cigarette, and then up at the speaker. "'In a general way, Mr. Fancourt, I should say no,' he replied slowly. "'My last job was scene-shifting at the Frivolity Theatre. Before that I drove a greengrocer's cart. I've also filled the post of light-porter and messenger-boy. I have travelled in cooking-stoves." "'A varied but no doubt interesting career,' Mr. Fancourt admitted. There is, however, to my way of thinking," he added, flicking the ash from the end of his cigarette, a certain sameness about all these occupations. "'I can assure you,' Bliss began. "'Do not misunderstand me,' Mr. Fancourt interrupted. "'I mean, a sameness in one respect only. They were all of them unsuitable for a man in your position. They were all, I presume, in the nature of honest toil. What I propose to you isn't.' Bliss stared at him. Mr. Fancourt had the air of a kindly man 
who is just a trifle bored by having to enter into tedious explanations. If, Mr. Johnson, he continued, you adhere to the very delightful standards of life advocated by what is known as the respectable part of the community, I am afraid that you and I will have very little in common, and that my assistance will be valueless to you. If, on the other hand, you recognize the only real philosophy of life, the philosophy that teaches us that, in accordance with the laws of nature, the strong man must take from the weak, the clever must strip the fool, that the man with brains and wit has a right to what he can take from those less amply equipped. If, as I say, Mr. Johnson, you can bring yourself into line with this modern train of thought, then it is possible you have reached the end of your troubles. Bliss, for the life of him, could think of nothing to say. The man's splendid reasonableness was unassailable. If I might venture to point this out without hurting your feelings, my young friend, Mr. Fancourt went on, might I suggest to you that, in this eternal warfare, you up to now have been on the side of the sheep? Let me propose to you that, having served your apprenticeship in one camp, you come over to the other. Permit me to offer you another cigarette. Bliss helped himself silently. He was feeling the curious fascination of being addressed once more as an equal by a man whose personal charm of manner was undeniable. "'I was once,' Mr. Fancourt continued, "'almost in your position. I am now able to live in a civilised manner, to afford myself the luxuries of life which to men of our class and upbringing are practically necessities. The people who contribute towards my support are the sheep. And how, Bliss inquired, is the fleecing done? Mr. Fancourt smiled ever so slightly. My young friend, he said, today we are what one might call laying foundation stones. The whole scheme of my profession, which in its way is, I think, unique, is a thing which you will only be able to grasp month by month, perhaps year by year. The immediate question is how to make use of you. It's up to you to point the finger, Bliss remarked cheerfully. I'm on for pretty much nearly anything. Just so, Mr. Fancourt murmured. At the same time, you can understand that your admission into the little circle of, uh, shall we say, my disciples, must naturally be an affair conducted by degrees. We have to place you, first of all, upon uh, probation. Now, tell me, are there any of the ordinary pleasure haunts of London which you feel you could frequent without embarrassment? Bliss ruminated for a moment. I would particularly recommend, if possible, Mr. Fancourt suggested gently, the promenades at the popular music halls. Quite all right for me, 
Bliss declared. Mr. Fancourt smiled. "'You were, I perceive,' he remarked, "'in touch with the modern idea prevalent amongst young men of fashion.' Bliss nodded. "'Rotten form to be seen in the promenade of any of these places,' he admitted. "'Exactly,' Mr. Fancourt agreed. "'Now, as you are doubtless aware, it is in these places that these sheep are gathered together. It is the young men from the provinces we want. Their white waistcoats are appalling, and their ties uncertain, uh, but their money is good. They are usually attracted, too, by the real article, as the moth by a candle. One of my little enterprises, sir, Mr. Fancourt continued, leaning back in his chair, is a mixed bridge club. It opens at ten o'clock and provides a little harmless diversion for these young men who are on the lookout to see life. Let us, Bliss suggested, cut the cackle. Mr. Fancourt nodded affably. He was scribbling a line or two on a sheet of paper by his side. You can take this to Poulet's, the tailors in Southampton Row, he said. They will fit you out for the evening and the morning. Your hunting-ground for the present will be the promenade at the Empire. Here, he added, uh, are a few pounds for incidental expenses. As regards the rest, you can entertain any acquaintances you may find at Gaylor's restaurant, and sign the bill Fancourt with two dots afterwards. The maitre d'hôtel there, Henri, shall have instructions from me to-day. Your ultimate object will be to bring your acquaintances on to Sidley's Bridge Club, number 17, Folkestone Street. These sort of men don't all play bridge, Bliss remarked. Quite so, Mr. Fancourt assented dryly. I will not say exactly where, but, um, Baccarat can usually be arranged for quite close at hand. Then you must remember that it is a mixed bridge club of the highest standing. The ordinary provincial has read about these places, but has never visited one. You will find it easy to arouse a little curiosity. Am I to play? Bliss asked. Not at present, Mr. Fancourt replied. You will simply bring your acquaintance in, order a drink for him, and introduce him either to me or to Mrs. Fortescue, the secretary. Mrs. Fortescue? Bliss objected. I do not know the lady. She will know you, Fancourt assured him. Shall we say au revoir for the present? Bliss rose to his feet. I am starting you with the bridge club. Mr. Fancourt continued, but let me assure you that this institution is only the outside edge of the enterprises in which I am concerned. I shall give you four pounds a week to commence with, but if you prove trustworthy, you will shortly be put in the way of earning any income you please, according to your skill and courage. I am surrounded by young men in your position— Mr. Fancourt concluded, after a slight hesitation. But, to tell you the truth, they are most of them rotters, 
or else too well known. They are simply anxious to engage their vices and keep their pockets full. They have neither brains nor grit. I need a man who has a fair share of both. It is possible that you and I may get on together, Mr. Johnson. Bliss made his way out into the street a little dazed. Only one thing was perfectly clear to him. Unsavoury and dangerous though the encircling atmosphere might be, Mr. Fancourt was standing with both feet in the land of adventures. Bliss, despite the sordidness of his own proposed share in them, felt the thrill of coming events. To certain lengths, at any rate, he was prepared to follow his new star. End of chapter 12